do you know the experience of being given a task without the equipping and the equipment to carry it out? And maybe a, a work project without sufficient funding or a, a lab experiment without proper instrumentation or a landscape task without the proper tools. Do you know the experience of being given a task without the, the equipment to do it? I enjoy mowing my lawn. Uh, a couple years ago, I got a new lawnmower, went to Home Depot and got their kind of run-of-the-mill Toro variety push mower. And I remember being out there in the front yard cutting grass. Um, my son Soren was four at the time. He comes bolting out the door. He's excited. He wants to help. And what does he have in his right hands? He has a pair of children's scissors. And he dutifully kneels down and he just starts snipping one blade at a time. And as I'm at a distance mowing over here, I see him smiling. Daddy, I'm helping you. And he just snips, snips one at a time, one at a time. And when I was done, I was very intentional to, to thank him for his, his help. And then I just asked him, Soren, how long do you think it would take to do all the lawn with those kids' scissors? He says, a long time. I said, that's right. What you need is the right tool to get the job done. And one day, I will happily hand this mower over to you when you're about 12, and you'll be cutting the grass the right tool, the right equipment makes all the difference. Do you know the experience of being given a task without the equipment to do it? Well, one very encouraging truth that we find in the Bible is that God never calls you to a task without also giving you what you need to do it. God never calls you to a task, to an endeavor, to a journey without also supplying, providing, and giving what you need to carry it out for your good and for his glory. God calls and equips his people. That's what I want to convince you of this morning. God calls and equips his people to do what he intends them to do. This is a key truth that we see here as we conclude our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians. We've been in 1 Thessalonians since the beginning of June. It's been a great summer series. We're going to conclude it. And then next week, we'll have a brief two-week series on musical worship in the life of a church. How do we sing rightly to the Lord? How do we think well about music and worship in the life of the church? And so we'll do a, a two-week series on that, and then we'll be in the Psalms for a few weeks. And so that's just sort of the trajectory that we're headed on. But for this morning, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In the Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 988, page 988. And we're continuing and concluding our series in 1 Thessalonians that we've entitled Power in Life, Hope in Death. Power in Life, Hope in Death. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides power to live the Christian life, and it provides us hope as we stare down the reality of our death. And that's a, a nice summary of what we find in 1 Thessalonians. Power for life, hope in death. If you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we always mention this. We would love to give you one. So in the lobby, there's some black hardback Bibles. If you need one, if a friend needs one, please take one. Those are a gift to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm going to read uh, verses 23 through 28, uh, the conclusion of the letter. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirits and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, as you can tell, this is the final portion of Paul's letter. It's the conclusion, and as a conclusion, it bears some identifying marks with his other concluding remarks in his letters. So some of those identifying remarks is there's a benediction here, which literally means good word or a spoken blessing. So there's a benediction here in verses 23 and 24, a, a good word that he speaks, a blessing that he speaks over this church. We also see some final instructions and exhortations. That's customary at the end of his letters. And then we see a concluding greeting, again, uh, customary in, in his conclusions, greet so-and-so in the life of the church. So this part of Paul's letter is one that you, you may be tempted in your own Bible reading or your own Bible study to kind of gloss over. Like, what could possibly be helpful? What could you possibly glean out of a conclusion of Paul's letter? Well, I want to encourage you and remind you there's much fruit here. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that men and women of God may be thoroughly equipped, competent for every good work. So the conclusions of Paul's letters, they're, they're part of Scripture, and as such, they're profitable. Some of it seems cultural or kind of time-bound, but we see here the, 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 the translation work to make this relevant for us today. So to organize our time in this passage, I want to subdivide Paul's conclusion in two parts. Two parts here. First, pastoral blessing. That's the benediction, verses 23-24. Pastoral blessing. And then secondly, priorities for Christian community. Priorities for Christian community. That's the two big subdivisions here. Pastoral blessing, verse 23-24, followed by priorities for Christian communities. So first, let's take a look at this pastoral blessing. It's a spoken blessing. Paul says in verse 23, 24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a massive statement, an incredibly rich and deep blessing that he's speaking over these beloved people at the church in Thessalonica. Before we look at the, the glorious blessing and statement, let's first consider the glorious characteristic of the God that he references here. Notice what he says about God and his character. The God of peace is the one who's going to accomplish this. The God of peace. Well, what does he mean by that? Peace is what human beings desperately need in relation to a holy God. Because the Bible says that we are naturally at enmity, the opposite of peace, with God. Hostile in mind and intent and deed toward God. We are desperately in need of peace with God. The human condition is marked by enmity with God naturally. And this enmity is a result of our rebellion against God, our desire to do things our own way, to depart from God's good commands, 
from his good order, from his good authority, and to do things to have it our own way. We are children of our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, who sought to do things their own way, rejecting the good authority, the good command of God that's cascaded down every generation since. You know if you're a parent, you never have to teach your kids how to disobey. They are instinctive experts at it. You have to teach them how to do right. You have to teach them how to obey. You don't have to teach them. It's instinctive. It's innate. They're experts at sinning. We all are. It's how we were born as a result of Adam and Eve and the the cascading results of their rebellion. Well, our sin results in relational separation from God. Our sin is an affront. It's offensive to a holy God. It's rightly deserving of his displeasure. And so it places us in line awaiting God's wrath, his, his just condemnation against us for our rebellion. We are desperately in need of reconciliation, healing, peace with God. We can't engineer this peace by ourselves. We're absolutely dependent upon God. The source of peace is what we see here, the peace of God. The God of peace, the one who is the source of it, the one who provides it and supplies it in abundant measure for all who will humble themselves and ask and seek his face. How does he provide this peace? Through the mechanism of his son, Jesus Christ, the free giving of his son, the incarnation, the perfect life, the atoning death at the cross, bearing the judgment that you and I deserve, Jesus was then buried in a tomb, and he rose again, conquering our sin and death on the third day. And anybody who trusts in Jesus is forgiven of all their sin. The enmity is eliminated, and now they have peace, lasting, abiding peace with God. This is what Paul is highlighting. You can almost read by it, but he's highlighting this for a reason. This peace-giving nature of God He is the author of our salvation. He's the initiator of our salvation. Paul's going to go on to describe who's going to continue your salvation trajectory. But by referencing the God of peace, he's the one that initiates our salvation, that gives us peace with him. Salvation peace originates with God. He's the author of it. And not only is the author of that salvation, he's the finisher of it as well. And that's where the rest of this blessing goes, is speaking of who's the sustainer, the completer of the salvation trajectory. Well, it's God himself as well. He will surely do it. There's great hope and comfort in what Paul is saying here. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, has a trajectory. It has a flight path. We are are headed in a direction by the grace of God who saves us and sanctifies us. Paul's using that word sanctification again. It's come up a few times in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. What does he mean by sanctification? Sanctification is that process, that incremental step-by-step process of being formed and fashioned in the character of Jesus Christ. The process by which we are made holy, the process of maturity in Christ. Paul speaks about this process and the end game of the process, which is maturity in Christ, in another letter, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
What's the goal of the preaching of the gospel? Paul says, to present everyone mature, complete in Christ, sanctified in Christ. Christians, you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, you're on a trajectory, you're on a flight path that ends with maturation in Christ. Well, the question is, how are we empowered along that trajectory? That's what he's getting at here. And it is, the payoff here is deep encouragement because you're not on your own fumbling about on the trajectory. You are empowered with rocket fuel by the grace of God. This is the pastoral pastoral nature of Paul's benediction. We've talked all along, one one of the dominant themes in 1 Thessalonians is the need for reassurance. These are a shaken group, shaken by sudden deaths in their midst, wondering if the dead in Christ are ever going to be reunited with him, wondering if they're missing out on the return of Christ. And then you get to chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. There's some fear and trepidation before the congregation. Will they be ready for the return of Christ? And Paul says, look, you're not sons of the darkness. You're not sons of sin. You're sons of the light. You're walking with Christ. You have nothing to fear. That day is a day of joy for you. It's a day of great terror for those who've rejected Christ, but it's, it's a day of great joy for you. He's reassuring them of their their readiness to see Christ face to face. And this passage, in the conclusion, he's the ever skillful shepherd, the, the pastor who's attuned with the needs of his people. He knows they need one last word of reassurance and encouragement. How will they be made, be made ready at the return of Christ? By God's faithfulness to make them ready. He is the one who will do it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying may God complete the spiritual work that he's begun. May he bring it to completion, the work that he's initiated. The author of Hebrews names Jesus Christ as both the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation, the one who starts it and the one who ends it and sustains it all along the way. It's Jesus. It's his work. It's his power. He will bring us to the end goal of our faith. That is maturity in him. Notice that the spiritual change that Paul prays for, prays over his friends, is thoroughgoing. Notice the language of completeness and wholeness. It's thoroughgoing. May, him, may he himself sanctify you completely, not halfway, not halfway done, not halfway baked, fully, fully done. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's not kind of subdividing the human kind of experience. He's he's using redundancy in terms to talk about the totality of who you are. All that you are. All of it's going to be made blameless, mature in Christ on that final day. All of you are going to be made ready. It's thoroughgoing. If you believe in Jesus Christ, friend, he's going to make you ready for his return. You have nothing to fear. Keep your eyes on him. Walk in step with his spirit. This is your trajectory. What a glorious promise. And can I ask you, do you actually believe it? Do you believe that he's empowering you on this trajectory? What behaviors 
might betray your belief in his power along that trajectory. What behaviors in our lives betray our belief in this truth that God is empowering us along the pathway and will bring us to our destination? Self-reliance is one of them. A trust in yourself, your own spiritual muscle. Works righteousness, a desire to work your fingers to the bone to somehow make yourself acceptable to God, it never works. Christ has already made you acceptable. You need to rest in him, receive what he's already done. Yes, we're called to work, but it's a work that's driven out of a reception of Christ. Self-reliance works righteousness, running the spiritual treadmill that never ends. Are you on a treadmill this morning? Running to make yourself acceptable before God. This is the folly of the Galatian Christians. Paul says, he confronts them in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Do you see what he's saying? You began by the Spirit, by the grace of God, and now are you trying to run the rest of the race on your own muscle, your own strength? That's foolishness. You begin by the Spirit. You begin by the grace of God. You continue by the grace of God. And you finish by the grace of God. It's His work. Look to Him. Rest in Him. Lean into Him. This is a call for active dependence, not total passivity. We have a role to play in this pathway of sanctification. The role is abiding John 15, staying attached to the vine. The only way you can bear fruit in the Christian life is by attaching, clinging to the vine. He's going to produce fruit through you, but you've got to abide. You've got to keep in step with him, walk in faith and obedience. He does the heavy lifting, though. He is the sustainer. He has the tighter grip along the journey. Yes, we're called to cling to him, but rest assured, he holds you tighter. You're safe with him. Well, to dispel any lingering doubts about God's empowerment along this spiritual trajectory, Paul says it again in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, rest in this truth. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you to salvation will complete that work of sanctification. On that last day, he will, he's faithful. He will surely do it. He will bring you safely, certainly, to the shores, the end shores of your salvation. Maturity and readiness to meet Christ. So can I ask you, what is that troubling, habitual sin that you think you're never going to overcome? that you begin to think that defines you, who you are, instead of realizing that you are in Christ, look to Christ. He's not finished with you yet. Look to Christ. Bring your burden to him. He's faithful to complete what he started. He's not finished with you yet. Uh, discouragement and demoralization are some of the devil's tactics. You're never going to get up out of that rut. You might as well quit been reading Little Pilgrim's Progress to my kids. This is the tactic of the wicked prince's army. Just 
demoralized, discouraged, get them looking at themselves instead of looking to Christ. It's a surefire way to be stagnant and go no further on the journey. Look to Christ, rest in him, for he is faithful. He will surely do it. Not you. He will surely do it. What is that debilitating area of sin? Look to Christ. He's not finished with you yet. Rest in the truth that you have empowerment in the faithful Lord along this journey. So here in the conclusion of Paul's letter, we find first a pastoral blessing. Secondly, we we find priorities of Christian communities. Priorities of Christian communities. So in verses 25 through 27, Paul provides some final instructions. And embedded in these final instructions are priorities that should mark every local church, that should mark every Christian community. So I want to draw your attention to three of them. Three priorities for every Christian community. The first we see is prayer. Prayer. Paul makes this vital request in verse 25. Brothers, pray for us. It's that short, it's that simple, it's that sweet. Brothers, that is brethren, the KJV, not just dudes. Men and women, whole church, pray for us. Pray for us. So short, so sweet, so important. In his book on prayer, John Onwachekwa says that prayer is like breathing. It's that essential to the Christian life. It's like breathing. It's, it's natural to what we have to do to stay alive as Christians. It's like breathing. It's just communicating with God. And you don't have to use flowery language. Just communicate. Call out to your Lord. Communicate with Him. Prayer is like breathing. It's also a hallmark of Christian community and Christian partnership. Paul was once in community with them when he was there three Sabbath days preaching the gospel. Lots of people got converted. He was a part of their community as a church planner, and then he transitioned on as a result of persecution. So he ceased to be kind of an in-person member of their community, but he enjoyed a relationship with them through partnership, and prayer is a part of that partnership. He's saying, brothers and sisters in the church, please pray for me in my ongoing work. Prayer is a part of partnership. It's a part of depth of relationship. Intercede for one another. In this local church, brothers and sisters, pray for each other. It's a simple application. Pray for each other, which involves knowing the needs of one another, which involves friendship and closeness and community Listen to each other on Sunday mornings after church, over coffee, serving in kids' ministry, serving in coffee outreach on Wednesday morning. Just listen to each other. You're informed then how to pray for each other. Brothers and sisters, pray for each other. It is a mark. It's a priority of Christian community. Prayer plugs us in to the Lord of the universe, the power supply to live this Christian life. Intercede with one another. Go before the throne room of God through prayer. I heard a sermon recently. The pastor asked this question. If God decided to answer your prayers that you've prayed in the last two weeks for every non-Christian, how many people would be saved? If God decided to answer every one of your prayers for the non-Christian people in your life, friends, neighbors, family members, and he answered those all based on the prayers that you prayed in two weeks, how many people would be converted? Are we regularly pleading before the throne room of God for people in our lives? 
If God decided to answer every one of your prayers for the friends in your local church, how would your local church change? Over the last two weeks, how are you praying for your people in your church? Do you know their needs? Brothers and sisters, pray for one another. Pray for one another. Talk to one another. Press into one another. It's a mark of Christian community. A second mark of Christian community, affection. Let's look at verse 26. Curious verse here. Greet all the brothers, that is brothers and sisters, with a holy kiss. We make, my son just went, that's, that's not what this, this means. The holy kiss is a cultural symbol of affection, of love shared in a local church. So we need to kind of think through some cultural equivalents. You might say, greet each other with the right hand of fellowship, or greet each other with a holy hug. We have the Gray family with us. I'm going to share a little story about your dad. Our brother Aaron Gray, who, who passed a year ago, he didn't know what a handshake was. That just didn't commute to him. I remember several times coming to church on Sunday, and I kind of hold my hand out that was interrupted by his big chest coming at me, and he's just engulfing me with a hug. Hug. He, 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 didn't, he didn't do the right hand of fellowship. He did the holy hugs. It's a symbol, you see, of intimacy and love in a local church. Are we sharing that kind of intimacy, closeness, affection in our local church? It's appropriate. There's nothing sexual going on here. The holy kiss is a cultural symbol of affection. How do you express that, share that, receive that in our local church? It's love, kindness, appropriate physical affection, handshakes, hugs. It's good. It's a good thing. Priorities for every Christian community. Prayer, affection. Thirdly and finally, Scripture. Scripture. Paul writes in verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. So what Paul does here, he likely, likely has been dictating the letter to a scribe. And then here at the end, what he often does, he takes the pen himself and he writes the final portion of it. And he says, I charge you to have this letter read publicly before the brothers and sisters in the church. I put you under oath before the Lord. It's, it's that important. This is intense language. I charge you to have this word read. He doesn't want it dismissed, derailed, forgotten. It's got to be read publicly. It's a priority. You see, the word of God must take priority in the local church. The public reading of Scripture and the public proclamation of the Scripture is a priority in Christian community. I've been reading through portions of the Old Testament. I want to encourage you this week as a homework assignment, open to 2 Kings chapter 22. This long litany of unfaithful kings, suddenly you reach King Josiah who, like David before him, seems to have a heart after God. And one day in Josiah's reign, the priest, the high priest at the time, goes into the temple. And this is just a picture of the spiritual state 
of the people in the southern kingdom. Hilkiah goes into the the temple and he finds the book of the law. In other words, it was lost for decades. It was lost, like the decadence of the people to lose the word of God, which was the king's responsibility to readily read aloud to the people. It was lost. Hilkiah finds the book of the law. He reads it to the temple attendant, Shaphan. They then take it to Josiah, and they spend hours reading the book of the law. What happens to Josiah? He tears his robes, which is this cultural picture of mourning and repentance and grievance. He tears his robes. We have abdicated our role. We've not been by the book. We've not read it. You see, the public reading of the scripture brings repentance. Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra gets up and reads the word publicly for hours, and the people are cut to the heart and say, what do we do? Public reading of the word has spiritual power. We need to hear it regularly read aloud. We need to hear it proclaimed. That's the benefit of what we do here. You come to church, there's a unique opportunity to gather with your church family and hear God's word read and proclaimed. And by his grace, he changes us from one degree of glory to the other as we hear his word preached. The public reading and proclamation of the scripture. Paul is saying, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this read and expounded and preached. Priorities for every Christian community, prayer, affection, and scripture. So we, this, the summary of the conclusion here in 1 Thessalonians is a pastoral blessing followed by some priorities for the Christian church. There's one final verse here that concludes the entirety of the letter. It's verse 28, a verse that serves as our hope, our anchor, and our identity. What does Paul say in verse 28? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Friends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything. We use this word often, but what does grace mean? How would you define grace to a non-Christian friend who simply asks you at work? How would you define in a short sentence grace? Here's a stab at it. Grace is unearned favor from God. Unmerited, unearned, unachieved favor, blessing, goodness from God. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. And we have received that through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection, he gives us grace on top of grace on top of grace. And it's that grace that sustains us along this trajectory until we reach those final shores with Jesus. One of the regular reminders of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is our celebration of the Lord's Supper. The reason we celebrate this regularly in the life of the church is to remind one another, to reinforce the reality of that grace, that we live by that grace, we're sustained by that grace, it will carry us to completion by that grace. The gracious gift of his broken body, his shed blood at the cross, it changes everything for all those who will trust in Christ. And so in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And if you're a believer, I invite you to partake with us. If you've come to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, looking away from self, clinging to him, we want you to celebrate this with us. If you've not yet come to trust in Christ, if you're unsure of where you stand with Jesus, just let, 
let the elements just pass you by, abstain, but we would love to talk to you and follow up with you that the next time we celebrate the Lord's table, you could come and celebrate it. If you've ha- not had an opportunity to pick up the communion bread cup, you can do so. It's right in the lobby on that table there. Um, and then I'm going to pray and, and lead us in, in a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the grace uh, that is found in publicly reading and unpacking your word. God, we, we need it. We need the change that only you can accomplish in our lives, and we're thankful that you promise to do it by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, you know the ways that some here in this church family, all of us in one way or another are stumbling, discouraged by habitual sins, stuck in ruts. God, I pray that we would lift our eyes to you, knowing that you are faithful, you will complete what you've started, you will sanctify us completely, fully. God, I pray that we would bear the marks of Christian community. We would be a people that prays for each other, a people that loves one another, a people that gathers around your word and clings so tightly to it. God, empower us, lead us forward along that trajectory until we see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.